This sermon, Humility, One of Our Seven Shaping Virtues, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, March 5th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, why this series? It's really very simple. We desire to be more like Jesus. We exist individually and corporately as a church. We exist for God's glory. And God's glory is revealed as his church reflects his greatness in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3 says, his manifold wisdom is made known to the cosmos. How? Through his church. That's our desire. That's why we desire to become more like Jesus, to the praise and glory of God. So if you're visiting us, we're, we're not trying to start a new revelation. <laughs> we, we just long for our lives to proclaim the praises of our Savior. If you're wondering what we're about around here, that's it. We, we have a deep desire put there by God himself when he saved us to see our lives proclaim the praises of our Savior. It's, it's that simple. Now, our hope and our prayer for this series is that God will grow these seven marks of grace He'll grow these, these seven shaping virtues in us. And I'm so grateful that, that they are evident among us already. The Lord has done much work in, in these areas. And your pastors could stand up here and give testimony after testimony of how we see God's fingerprints in your life, of how we see his grace manifested in very real, tangible ways. But we've never arrived, as Paul told the Thessalonians. We're still being sanctified. We're still being transformed more and more day by day from one glory to another into the image of Jesus Christ. And so our prayer is that God will grow these seven marks of grace in us as we identify them and learn to obediently pursue them with our hearts focused on Jesus and so, because our shape and virtues are not a sovereign grace thing, they are a biblical thing, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, and we are going to begin with the virtue that is the fountain of all virtues, humility. Jerry Bridges wrote, humility opens the way to all other godly character traits. It is the soil in which the other traits of the fruit of the Spirit grow. Indeed it is. So stand with me. Let's read together Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul writes in shackles to the church in Philippi, one of his dearest gospel planting partners, and he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Made, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, as we come to your word now, we come with humble hearts, desiring to receive from you through your word. Lord, we want to be a church that joyfully, gladly, eagerly reflects our Savior. We can't do that apart from you, so we ask now that through your word you work in us all that you intend for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is humility? Humility is one of those one of those things I think if you asked 50 different people for, to define it, you may get 50 different definitions. <laughs> what, what is humility? Well, here's a definition. Humility is a selfless disposition of the heart created by an accurate view of God, self, and Christ. God is infinitely holy. I am utterly sinful. The only way that I can joyfully relate to God and generously receive from God is his undeserved saving grace toward me in Jesus Christ. The degree that reality shapes us is the degree in which we will be characterized both as individuals and as a local church by true humility. You, you could say it this way, the humiliation of Christ in the gospel creates humble hearts in his people. The humiliation of Christ in the gospel creates humble hearts in his people. Humility is an interesting thing. The key to becoming more humble is not focusing on being more humble. It's focusing on the, humili in the, on the humility and humiliation of someone else, Christ himself. The key to humility is not to look to ourselves, it's to look, as we will see, away from ourselves to the one who humbled himself for us. The humiliation of Christ in the gospel creates humble hearts in his people. Now, after affirming their identity in Christ, that is, the Philippians, um, Paul does that, you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, through a, a rapid-fire set of rhetorical questions, right? Any comfort from Christ or any encouragement from Christ? Any comfort in the Spirit or any comfort from the love of God? Any fellowship with the Spirit, participation? Have you experienced the affections and mercy of the Spirit through God's people? They all answer in the affirmative. Yes, we have. Paul says, good, it's a trap. <laughs> Paul says, good. If this, verse 1, your identity in Christ, then this, live humbly. And then in verses 3 and 4, he shows them clearly how gospel-centered humility manifests itself. How those unified in Christ live humbly humbly with one another. Two points this morning for those of you taking notes. They're simple. How our humility is manifested, our humility 
manifest, our manifestation of humility, and then we'll look at our motive and model. It's one and the same, as we will learn. Our motive and model for humility. Notice again what he, what he says in verse 3, after establishing their identity in Christ. He says, okay, so do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You're in Christ? Great. Do nothing from rivalry then or conceit. And in those words, Paul pictures a person who is full of themselves. It's, it's a person driven by their own desires and their own glory. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition itself isn't sinful. God wants us to have godly ambition, though. That is a passion and a drive for his purposes and his glory. But the person here in verse 3, that that's not this person. The proud person in verse 3 has their own agenda and carries it, carries it out for their own praises. Conceit's one of those words. Nobody wants to be labeled with the word conceit, right? Uh, I don't know how it is in high school nowadays, but back in high school, that, that Derek, he's so full of himself. He's so conceited. Heard that more than once. This is a person full of themselves. It's about me. They're living, they're acting, sometimes subtly, sometimes obviously, for their own praises, their own agenda. So this is what Paul begins with. Oh, you in Christ, great. Now, don't be this person. Don't be this person. And the first step in growing, I love what... Paul does here. He's going to teach on humility in a moment, but the first thing he does is he wants us to understand pride. The first step in growing in humility is understanding pride. By nature, you and I are proud. We're not humble. By nature, we are prone to conceit because our hearts naturally crave praises. If you will, pride is in our DNA, and you can thank Adam for that. C.J. Mahaney says the real issue is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. So can we just kind of come to an agreement, some common ground? We're all proud in some way, right? Pride has many faces. Some are obvious. Others are not. But self is at the center of them all. Right? I thought about this week. Feeling unappreciated when you serve others and receive no recognition for your efforts. That's pride. Self-deprecating speech that's actually meant to draw praises from others for something you're actually quite proud of. It's called humble brag. Look it up in the dictionary. It is false humility. It's pride. The loudest person, are you the loudest person when you enter the room, while you're in the room, and when you leave the room because you desire everyone's attention in the room? That's pride. When we wallow in self-pity because life is hard and I deserve so much better, it's pride. An unwillingness to get out of your comfort zone for the spiritual good of another. It's called fear of man, and it may be the most deceptive and destructive form of pride we face. You characterize by telling others what you know rather than seeking them for their input. It's pride. Expectations to be served by others exceed your enthusiasm to serve others. It's pride. Here's mine. Here, well, they're all mine. <laughs> we can all identify with these to some degree. But, but here's one that I can really identify with. The temptation to be hypercritical of self and others because little things that go wrong reflect poorly on me. That's pride. 
God hates pride. He opposes the proud, James 4, 6. But pride is deceptive. It's the root of all evil, and it's deceptive. And whatever form our pride take, I can promise you this, it's the opposite of what God desires in us and for us, which is humility. God sets his sights on the humble person, Isaiah 66, 2. God lavishes out his grace on the humble person, James 4, 6. God hates pride. He loves humility. And so with the Spirit's help, we must kill pride, yes. But more than that, we must... We must replace pride with humility. We must kill pride, and we must replace that pride with humility. And so Paul says in verse 3, after saying, hey, guys, put pride to death. Do nothing from, from rivalry or conceit. And then he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, humility counts others more significant than yourself. How? Getting your eyes off yourself and looking to the interests of others. Now, here's the thing about looking. Looking is labor, <laughs> Looking is work. Listen to the phrases connected with the original word here for looking. To notice carefully, to watch out for, to fix one's attention. In other words, we could translate this, we could translate Paul's words here. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but notice carefully the interests of others. Watch out for the interests of... Fix your attention on the interests of others. We tend to fix our attention on ourselves. I tend to be focused on me. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Look to the interest of others. Looking is intentional. Practically, looking looks a lot of different ways. It, looking means pausing in the middle of your busy day, that really important project, to listen to someone who needs encouragement from you. It means patiently praying for someone when you really want to punch them. <laughs> it means inquiring instead of accusing when you share a concern or correction because you don't, you want to be a means of grace to this person, not a hindrance. Looking means judging someone charitably until you know all the facts. Looking means listening to someone instead of interrupting them because you have something so great to say. <laughs> if you've ever watched Brian Regan... <laughs> He's got this great act, stand-up comedian, and he talks about how, you know, we, at parties or whatever, we stand around in circles, and we're all telling our stories, and there's always that one person who parachutes in with his story, and it's better than everybody else's. Oh, yeah, well, I, you know. <laughs> Are you a parachuter? You come in and take over a conversation. That's the opposite of humility, by the way. In different ways, each one of these examples I just mentioned, did you notice what they all have in common? Some of them are funny. Some of them are serious. Some of them may be very applicable to you. Some of them may not. The one thing they have in common 
is each one of them cause you to look away from yourself and to look to the interests of another. And that's what true, that, that, is, that is at the heart of true humility. Listen, true gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less, and there's a difference, because you are looking to others more. True gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not walking around putting yourself down. The quiet person is not necessarily humble. They may be quite proud, and that's why they're being quiet. Their pride keeps them from speaking. But true gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less because you are looking to the interests of others more. That's what a humble person does. They are constantly looking not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. And this, listen, this is the claim the gospel puts on our lives. Remember Paul's structure here. Are you in Christ? Yes, we are. Okay, well then, if that, this. Live humbly with one another. The gospel puts this claim on our lives. Christ calls us to humility. We are commanded to clothe ourselves with humility. We're not sufficient for it, (laughs) but we are commanded to it. And so Paul does, Paul knows this, by the way. Paul knows this, by the way. Uh, We all know, right, one of the most successful and popular, well-known marketing slogans is what? Just do it. (laughs) Paul never says, just do it. And he doesn't say that here. He, oh, he pulls no punches when it comes to Christian obedience. But the Christian obedience that he preaches is just that. It's Christian, which means it's motivated by grace, which means it's rooted. It, it, the imperative of our obedience is rooted in the indicative of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Amen. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He goes from for manifestations of humility in our lives to our motive and model for humility. Notice what he says in verse 5. After instructing them, exhorting them, he says, now, have this mind among yourselves. I, I wonder, it's not in here, but I wonder if Paul thought, okay, I don't want these guys just running out and focused on what does it mean to be humble, how do I be humble today? How do, no. Set your minds here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you know what he's about to do? He's about to fill their mind with the glory of Christ. (laughs) Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Some versions say he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You ever notice that there there are some passages of the Bible just seem to, to rise up like Mount Everest. You know, they just tower over the rest of Scripture. This text, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it's a Mount Everest in the Bible. It's one of those passages you read and sort of, it causes your heart to be undone. The mysteries in these verses, the glory in these verses, the hopefulness that these verses put forth, they tower. 
And my hope is that, that, that these verses will tower over three through four. Not that we forget three through four. That's what we're called to. But if all we remember about today is three through four, well, we've missed the point. And so five through eight tower above what we're called to. Paul wants to make sure that's what you see because the key to humility is looking to the one who was humbled for you. He is your motive. And so that's what he does. And perhaps the one word in these verses that tower over the rest is the word form in verse 6. Did you notice that? In our English language, that word form usually means what? It usually refers to an external likeness, right? But here, it refers to internal reality. In other words, Jesus is not simply like God. He shares his nature. Paul is saying when he says that he was in the form of God, he is saying he is fully God. He has, notice the word in verse 6, equality with God. What God the Father is, Jesus the Son is. <laughs> it's the glory of the Trinity. Three distinct persons, equal in Godness, yet one God. That word form is packed with theology that not only is mind-boggling to us, but that shapes who we are and what we believe and what we hold to be true about God. What God the Father is, Jesus is. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint no variations, the exact imprint of his nature. So Paul reminds us here, in the man Jesus, God lived among us. God lived and walked among us. And this truly is the, the incomprehensible truth of, and glory behind 33 years of human history, that God was with us. He walked among us. Maybe we should just stop and start singing again right now. <laughs> if we truly could, could grasp that reality. And yet, and yet, when it was time to accomplish his father's plan of salvation for sinners like you and I, that required him to, well, we'll get to that in a moment. When it came time to accomplish the Father's plan of salvation, verse 6 says Jesus did not grasp his equality with God. He did not grasp being God the Son. Every year we go to the cat to the go up to the mountains as a family, kids, grandkids. It's a great time. It's a chaotic time. Wouldn't wouldn't trade it for the world. <laughs> and Don and I have two grandsons. They're just just a little bit apart, Jack and Gavin. And they're at that age now where they're getting a little feisty. And they're getting a little feisty with each other. <laughs> you know how cousins are. And it was funny. It was great to watch our kids parent. <laughs> but it was funny to watch. Honey, I'm glad we're done with this stuff. <laughs> by the way, they're doing a great job by the grace of God. Amen. But it was funny because there were certain moments where I'm sure everybody in that room were fixed. They had their eyes fixed and they were just watching. Talk about pressure on the parents. Just watching Gavin and Jack. One of them would grab a toy that belonged to the other one. <laughs> and whether it was Gavin or Jack, they, they didn't care about that toy. 
But the moment they found out the other, the cousin had it, whew, they were right there, and there was a, right? I mean, they got their tiny little fist grip, they're clutching that toy, and they're pulling it back, and no, 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 no. Jack's a little smaller, a little younger, so, you know, he's not quite there. It's that picture. Get my... Instead of grasping his godness, refusing to let go, Jesus emptied himself. He became nothing. Meaning, he willingly surrendered the honor and praise and glory that was rightfully his and had been from eternity past as he experienced the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. To become a Jewish boy from Nazareth whose life would be cut short as he would be crucified as a criminal on a cross. That's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says Jesus emptied himself. He became nothing. Listen, Jesus, don't think for a moment, Jesus didn't empty himself of divine attributes. He didn't become less God when he became fully man. It, it was addition by addition. Jesus never minimized in his ministry. He never minimized, nor did he ever deny his deity. He just didn't grasp it. He didn't let it stand in the way of the salvation of sinners. He looked to the good of the church and did not count his equality with God to be something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself and became like you and I in every way. Notice verse 7. Let's start actually verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice Paul used that word form again. Same thing. It means the same here. Jesus did not simply take on human disguise. He did not merely appear to be like us. He became like us. He took on our human nature, the, the, the creator, the sustainer of all things, condescended into our fallen world and subjected himself to our frailties as human beings in every way, except one, according to Hebrews 2.17. He was without sin. Oh, he became sin for us on that cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21, but it wasn't his sin. It was yours. It was mine. He became, whoops, he became like us in every way. It's pretty amazing. I mean, think about God. God has infinite resources. He could have chosen to do this in any way he wanted. When Jesus came to us, he didn't come to us as wealthy and privileged royalty. The high man in the castle. Nobody can touch he didn't come as the mighty warrior king like the Jews thought. 
He didn't come high and lifted up in society. Quite the opposite. Isaiah 53 says he was low. But he could have. He's God. (laughs) But he came as a scorned slave. That's how he came. Look at that word in verse 7. The word translated servant, it means slave. So just just think about that for a moment. A slave was less significant than the least significant. (laughs) A slave had one interest, the interest of others. A slave was above no one and beneath everyone. (laughs) Jesus came as a slave. He humbled himself. He assumed our nature. He became like us. He became a servant. Translation, he became a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And in full, joyful, willing obedience to his father, he died the most humiliating, shameful, excruciating, cursed death possible. Notice how Paul throws that in at the end. He doesn't just leave it a point, a point to the Peter. What? <laughs> Verse 8. He became obedient to the point of death. We get it, Paul. No, you don't. Even death on a cross. Cursed by God himself is the one who dies on a cross. He didn't didn't just die like every human being dies. He took our place. He bore the wrath for our sins. God the Father looked upon him as if he had committed every one of them and then proceeded to unrelentingly with a divine and infinite fury that the Old Testament scriptures call the cup, representing God's wrath, poured it out on Jesus. He was looking the entire time to your interests, to my interests. You see, the cross is the opposite of selfish ambition and vain conceit. In true humility, God the Son counted you more significant than himself, making his entire life about your greatest interest being made right with God. Listen, if you're here this morning and and you don't know Jesus, this story is about how you come to know Jesus. And it's a true story. It really happened. God really took on human flesh. He lived for 33 years, becoming like us in every way, and yet was without sin. And he stepped down from the glories of heaven, came to us through a humble manger, grew up a nobody. You ever notice that? They st- we don't know anything about Jesus from, from the first, few, from the first uh, few weeks, perhaps a little bit longer than that, months, maybe a year or two. We know he went to Egypt. But from there... For 28 years, he's just a normal Joe. (laughs) Just like you and I. Going through life struggles. I think one of the things that we don't 
pay attention to enough in the church is the humanity of Jesus. Hebrews 4 says that, that as our great high priest, he was tempted as we were in every way. Yet he resisted it to the glory of his father. He did this looking to you and looking to the glory of his father. And I love that Paul uses the word. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. This was willingly. He was intentional. He carried his father's plan out of his own volition. And the word Paul uses is he humbled himself. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, humble yourselves. Live humbly with one another. He is our motive. He is our model. It's easy. I can look at the humility of Christ and however significant I think I am, it, it pales in comparison, doesn't it? It pales in comparison to the majesty and the magnificence of the preeminent one who was God himself. And yet he did not see, he did not see his godness as a pretext for his glory, but a platform to pour himself out so that our sins would be forgiven and our names would be written in the book of life with certainty. And, wait, there's more. And, Romans 5 says, he did this when I was still an enemy. How much, how much will a righteous man do for another righteous man? But this is the righteous for the unrighteous. <laughs> this is the height of looking away from self to others. This is true humility that led to the humility of Christ that compels us, that enables us to live humbly with one another. So how can we cultivate true humility? Well, with our eyes fixed on Christ first and foremost. But a couple applications. One, I'd encourage you to read the book of the quarter. I think we announced this in January, maybe. It's Sovereign Grace Journal. It's just a compilation of articles written by Sovereign Grace pastors. And this, this current edition is, is dedicated to our shaping virtues. And there's great articles on every virtue in here. And you'll enjoy them. Um, but I want to point you, particularly for application... There's a great section in the back. There, there's, there, there are six articles. And the role of our shaping virtues in global partnership, the role of shaping virtues among pastors, shaping virtues in small groups, shaping virtues in, in the home, shaping virtues in grandparenting, shaping virtues in our witness. In other words, these articles help us go, how do, what do these, what do these uh, gospel fruits look like in real life? They're wonderful articles. Pick your context. You got a family, you're wondering, how do I cultivate these in the home? There you go. <laughs> how do I engage with the lost world around me in a way that is shaped and informed by encouragement and joy? There you go. So read this. Give, make, make this a, a, a part of your reading diet over the next month. And then I've got just a couple things. Uh, actually, not a couple. I got six. 
There's a lot of ways we can cultivate humility in our lives. And they must all flow from and be motivated by Christ and his example. Wait, wait, hold on. Christ and his sacrifice and his example. I love the words of Piper. I'm probably going to butcher them. But he said, before Christ is our pattern, he is our pardon. In a world of WWJD, we need to be careful. First and foremost, Jesus is always our Savior. But these application points really flow from our text. So one, I'm just going to mention them. You can write them down. I think they'll be on the, on the board there. One, visit, learn to visit the cross often by reminding yourself who God is, who you were, and why Jesus matters. That's just good old-fashioned around here. We just call that preach, preach the gospel to yourself. Second, pray the words of Philippians 2, 3 through 4 for yourself and your church. It, 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 I, I love to, I'm learning to do that more and more. Lord, guard me from selfish ambition and vain conceit. Empower me. Empower me to consider others more significant than myself. Give me the grace to not only look to my interest, but look to the interest of others as well. Literally, pray the words of God. You want him to work that in your heart? Just don't try and, you don't, it's not rocket science. Lord, this is what you've called me to. Now will you do this in me? Help me. So pray, pray for yourself and our church, these words. Look for ways to serve others. Number three, it's a great way to get out of yourself. Number four, when you complete a task, something good happens to you or encouraging words are spoken about you. Take a moment and transfer all the glory to God. Number five, Eagerly encourage one another where you see humility and carefully correct one another where you see pride. Where you see humility, don't just let it go by. Remind me you see that in me and that it's God at work. And certainly... Where you see pride in my life, don't allow me to keep going down that road. Carefully and graciously correct me. And then finally, live today in light of tomorrow. Notice verse 9. Therefore, in other words, Christ humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an entirely different sermon. <laughs> actually, this is three sermons. Actually, this, the, well, anyway, you get the point. You get the point. God loves humility. And he loves to exalt the humble. Beginning with his son, Jesus Christ. And although you and I will never be exalted with the name above all names. And no knees will be bowing at our presence. Because Jesus alone is is the worthy lamb who was slain, the one that the angels encircle and sing praises at the feet of in heaven. But yet in Christ, God has exalted you, according to Ephesians 2, by seating you in the heavenlies with Jesus. And his promise his promise is to pour out his grace on those who live humbly as a result. Finish with this short story. 
there was a man who was at a conference. He had experienced a brutal church split. And as he listened to the testimony of a church who'd been around for 30 years, they were celebrating their 30-year anniversary, he listened to the testimony of the fruitfulness in that church. And here's what he shared was going on. He said he heard Gary affirm that right from the beginning, the church had a love for God's word. And Jim, the man who had experienced the church split, and Jim said to himself, yeah, we had that. What happened to us? Gary continued, we, we, we were in love with Jesus Christ and grateful for his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Yes, Jim thought, we had that too. We loved grace and we loved worship. Yes, so did we. We believed in the importance of relationships, Gary added. Once again, Jim inwardly responded, okay, yes, we did too. Then Gary said, and there was a strong emphasis on humility. Especially among the leaders. And Jim thought to himself, nope, we didn't have that. We didn't have that. This sermon begins with your pastors, your deacons, and the leaders in your church. So if that's you, I hope you're listening. (laughs) But it's for all of us. It's for the good of our church and the glory of Christ for us to gladly live humbly with one another. So let us. Let us, motivated by the gospel and empowered by the spirit, let us be a church that lives humbly, knowing that God will graciously grow this gospel fruit in us because we belong to him in Christ. We affirm we are in Christ and we will be with him in glory one day. And as we heard this morning, the call to worship, he will finish what he began.